Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, founder and editor of the Indonesian magazine Tempo, Gunawan Muhammad, recalls one of Indonesia's most cherished poets, Shairul Anwar, and offers perspectives on possible genealogies of modern Southeast Asian literary production since the 1950s. I'm one of the few people fortunate enough to meet Latif in the in his early years, and then to be with him in Centre de Pompidou, thanks to the National Gallery of Singapore, and then to the Elham Gallery. Uh, last one, was it? Okay. Uh, the title of this presentation is, is given by the, somebody here, which is fun. It's kind of preemptive strike. You never understand. We were, we will be discussing on modernism and everything connected to that, but it's a concept I would like to do without, because modernism, as most critics describe it, is a constellation of artistic and intellectual trends spawned from the European social changes in the 18th century. The Indonesian and Malaysian literary histories that I know have their own rites of passage. My impression is that the word modern in our part of the world has less to do with a time-related paradigm than with a particular way of writing and reading. An Indonesian modernist poet of the 1940s, Haidel Anwar, born in 1922 and died in 1949, very young age, brings with him a different mode of literary expression. Hyrule's poetry is radically at variance with, the, with that of the Pujangabaru, the new literary of the 1930s, despite the latter's brand of modernity. The Pujangabaru, the new literary, as many of you will recall, was a movement determined to uproot traditional literary forms like Pantun and Sha'ir and Hikayat. Hyril and his generation, however, insisted that the Pujanga Baru's modernity was not as open and as bold as it should be. It is quite possible that Hyrule's electrifying writings reflect the evenement, so to speak, of the 1940s, which is the revolution and the concurrent social upheavals, which could be very violent. For obvious reasons, I cannot speak confidently of Latif Moedin's modernism as something chronologically related to a similar historical rupture. After all, my grasp of Malaysian cultural history is very limited. Therefore, I prefer an alternative approach. I will invite you to join me, as phenomenologists would say it, to the things themselves by trying to bracket out assumptions and remain attentive to what is present. In other words, to directly examine the poetry you are supposed to talk about. What strikes me the most in both Latif's poems and Heidel's poems, at least the ones I like best, is the, their quality as condensed, stripped-down poetry, utilizing strings of nouns and a few adjectives and infinitive verbs. They eliminate narrative and verbal description or replace them replace the words that contain concepts and ideas with images. This is a poem, Dihari Pahlawan, by Latif Moedin. Dihari Pahlawan, penuh restu, duduk seorang anak-anak, melihat terpaku, sekuntum bunga, sepatu, dingin dan kaku, dingin dan kaku. Reading the poem is like watching a snapshot, a photography. I find a similar image-based lyricism in many Hyrule's poems. Here's a piece of them. Slide two. Taman punya kita berdua, 
the park we own, we share, tak lebar luas kecil saja, satu tak kehilangan lain dalamnya. Bagi kau dan aku cukuplah, taman kembangnya tak berpuluh warna, padang rumputnya tak berbanding permadani, halus lembut di pijak kaki. In this point, there's a, the park, the bench, the flowers, and the grass. But they're all nouns without adjective, and but even more pertinently, is an exquisite, uh, it's a beautiful verse of Rendra, an innocent poet who was born in 1937 Ada burung dua, jantan dan betina, hinggap di dahan. Ada daun dua, tidak jantan, tidak betina, gugur di dahan. Ada angin dan kapuk. Dua-duanya sudah tua, pergi ke selatan. Ada burung, daun, kapuk, angin, dan mungkin juga debu mengendap dalam nyanyianku. Shall I translate them? You, you just do your own translation, please. Well, in each stanza, things are immediately blocked from the walls. No abstraction. There's birds, uh, Leaves and the kapok, kapok flowers and winds, uh, but they are neither bare natural objects, no no abstraction. The string of things suggests more than its literal meaning, yet avoids overt figurative devices like allegory and even metaphor. They are images, as I said, and an image like, as Ezra Pound describes, and I'm very happy that Pauline mentioned Pound in her presentation this morning. According to Pound, an image is that presents an intellectual and emotional complex in an instant time. Uh, I have a theory that images, like the ones in the best of lyrical poetry, have two elements at play. One is the visual, the other is the unpronounced. Both make the poem. I'll give you an uh, example. What is Pasternak's definition of poetry? So, how he imagined Poetry is with this kind of quatrain. It's a whistle blown bright in a trice. It's a cracking of ice in a gale. It's a night that turns green, leaves to ice. It's a duel, duel of two nightingales. Uh, the stanza consists of delicate moments of hearing, dreamlike moments of seeing, all transients all concrete. It's like a canvas with a Rousseau-like painting, you know, Henri Rousseau, the French surrealist painter. Latif, poor Beverly, because he is a painter, uses nouns and adjectives to transform his world by infusing the force of visual into it and even making the oral, the audible, almost visible. This one poem I like to show you. In this poem, the slide number five, suara yang tidak dilangsungkan adalah debu hitam. He speaks of suara sound as something hitam, black. So you, he transform the audible into the visible. Berkumpul di sudut tabir di bawah buku dan almarim almari setiap malam. Suara yang Tidak dilaungkan adalah debu hitam berkumpul di sudut tamper, tabir di bawah kuku dan jari setiap malam. In another poem, words or phrases are presented as it were in their materiality. 
precisely when there's a quality of enchantment or the magical in their being. Dua kalimat terapung di kaum malam, di gaung malam. Dua kalimat berpelukan, sepasang degup melambung ke angkasa. Adam tak berkedip menyaksikan. As you can see, the poem speaks of gaung, echo, something we hear as palpable space in which the two mysterious phrases hang. Then a pair of the group throbbed something for the ears, bones to the sky as if you could see their movement. And Adam, believed to be the first human created by God, perceived the flight of the, the two sentences, dua kalimat, in awe. He watches them without a blink, tak berkerip menyaksikan. And the rest is silence. My reading is this is this is the way Latif projects Kalimat Shahadat, the diet of Islamic pronouncements of faith, as a moving image in heavens without enunciating it. Images are, as I suggested earlier, visual events. Great, great lyrical poems remind me of what. John Paul Sartre says years ago of the poetic work as microcosm. When the poet joins together several of these microcosms, microcosms, he says, he is doing what the painters do when they put their colors on canvas. What is he doing is not composing a phrase, but this is just an appearance. The poet is creating a phrase object object, the phrase object is painterly to the force. It's an achievement of a painterly ma manner. Uh, let me quote Latif's painterly approach to nature. Kulukis engkau dengan lumut, kulukis engkau dengan lumpur, dengan kaki-kaki teratai, dengan jari-jari hijau, dengan lidah angin engkau kulukis, Dengan bibir ombak engkau kulukis. Kulukis engkau dengan lengan, dengan lenggok-lenggok anak sungai, dengan renangan mabuk anak ikan, dengan daun derayan daun cemara, dengan tiupan pohon bambu, dengan apa-apa saja yang lembut dan berlaku, engkau kulukis. I have another painterly poem by Hiram Anwar, his famous quatrain, Senja di Pelabuhan Kecil. Uh, dust at the small harbor. Ini kali tidak ada yang mencari cinta di antara gudang, rumah tua, pada cerita tiang serta temali. Kapal, perahu tiada perlaut menghembus diri dalam mempercaya mau berpaut. Gerimis mempercapat kelam. Ada juga kelepak alang, menyinggung muram, desir hari lari berenang, Menemu bujuk panggal akanan. Tidak bergerak. Dan kini tanah dan air tidur hilang ombak. Tiada lagi aku sendiri berjalan menyisir semenanjung. Masih pengap harap. Sesekali tiba di ujung dan sekalian selama jalan. Dari pantai keempat. Seduh penghabisan bisa terdekat. The meaning of this poem is very elusive. But you see... The poem grows, as it were, into a panoramic canvas of small harbor at dusk. There is a gudang, a warehouse, warehouse, a rumah tua, a decrepit shack, ships and stranded boats, kapal praut tiada braut, mast and ropes, seagulls clapping their wings, spatters of drizzles, a darkening space. To me, they are the visualization of gloom and stillness. Tidak bergerak dan kini tanah dan air hilang ombak. Immediately, the poem becomes a space pervaded by a body of things that are both palpable and mute. Palpable and mute are words I take from Archibald MacLeish's Ars Poetica, the very famous poem which he writes uh, the as a kind of what principle of his aesthetics. This is the dusk 
the and the harbor. And let me read you the poem of Maclay's slide number ten. Yeah, a poem should be palpable and mute as a globed fruit, dumped as old medallions to the thump, silent as the sleeve-warm stone of casement ledges where the moss gets ground. A poem should be wordless as the flight of birds. The longer part of the poem, uh, I just delete it because it's going to be very long. Uh, well, the poem is just, a poem should be wordless as the flight of birds. A wordless poem may be an oxymoron, but the idea is not entirely nonsensical. MacLeish's piece, MacLeish's piece is composed of many images. The words act more like signals of the presence of some tangible things. They are free from a referential burden. They don't have to refer to anything. The things, the globed fruit, the old medallion, the moss, are open and perpetually transient, eluding conceptualization. And I said, as I said earlier, they embody the visual and the unpronounced. They resist the preponderance of language. Two, as, as it's universally accepted, language is a resource a poet has to use to express her or himself, even when she or he is less interested in the communicative role of his or her words. And yet, language is, to borrow Frederick Jameson's metaphor, a prison house. Uh, this is especially true when language is considered to be rules a community accepts which are imposed upon it and not freely agreed to. It's the social, the language philosopher, the very famous one from Switzerland, calls it language. There's a parole and language. Parole is a day-to-day -day speech. Language is more a system. On the grounds, poetry is an adventure, a process liberating the thing from the constraints of language. In a piece called Credo Poesy, a short manifesto on poetry, the Indonesian poet of the 60s, Sutarji Kasum Bahari, who was born in 1941, that's my age, argue, arguably the most innovative poet of the 70s, assert his agenda germane to the issue. Uh, so you can see it, I'll translate it. Right? Word is not a tool to deliver messages. It's unlike a pipe funneling water. Words are messages per se. Word is free. It is like a chair that is not instrument for sitting, a knife that is not a tool to cut or to thrust. Word should be free from the repressive control of meaning. Bebas dari penjajahan pengertian. Literally, it's colonization of mean. Uh, from the burden of an idea. Words should be free from the rotten tradition shackling a dictionary and other repressive means. Penjajahan kamus, is it? Kamus dan other repression, grammars, and the moral burden the society puts on us, denoting the options, the not options. This is kind of yoke, linguistic yoke, and doctrines, concepts, legal glossary, stock phrases, cliches, and they are too remote from the actual history. They stop being treated as occasions. The cognitive desire for meaning and signification keeps them upstairs to the level of abstraction and controls them. For example, when you say night, night 
when you ab ab make it an abstract word, it becomes a, a time frame from dusk to dawn. But then you control this word, concept. Poetry should liberate this. And because otherwise, our conversation pass over words as things in process. Words are things in process. As we recycle our vocabulary and treat it merely as a tool, we will never see the process. To borrow Delilo's metaphor in the borderline artist, his novel, words like moons in particular faces. Ultimately, with kind of this non-free words, unfree words, free, which are not free, we create, what we create is a reality encumbered by concept. But in good time, there's poetry, and Stephen Mallarmé, a French poet, believes that it does the job of poetry to clean up our word-clocked reality by creating silence around things. Mallarmé created this poem, which is, I cannot read. First, it is in French. Second, it's unreadable. And if you don't, you can't read it, it's okay. You look at it. It's like Latif Mohidin's sketches. But there's an, uh, uh, and this is Sutarji Kasum Bahri poem. He said, when words should be liberated from vocabulary, from the concept. So he, he draws like Malarmida. And a poem by Sitor Sumorang, Indonesian poet who was born in 1932, uh, and died in 2014. A one-line verse. Sitor, as you see, get rid of superfluous words and retain only five exact ones. And at the same time, renders only a particular moment, not generality. As I read it, both the graveyard and Guburan and the moon, Bulan, have no symbolic intent. But they make a bizarre and baffling presence. As everyone knows, on the eve of Lebaran, the end of Ramadan, which is the first day of the new month, no moon is visible. This uncommon sight disrupts the normal flow of denotation. The night, the graveyard and the moon are images of muteness. There's no more logocentric stability. In a way, the one-line verse is comparable to this famous haiku. Again, I'd like to thank Pauline for mentioning haiku in, in, this, in this context. You see, a very famous haiku by Basho. I think it's the eighth century Japanese history. Basso, in this, this, this short, very short poem, presents an image of tranquility, of a simple, ordinary movement, and of water stirred by a plank. And in this haiku, language recedes. The question is, where is the meaning? Where one can find meaning when language seems to withdraw? when the verbal constructs are superseded by images. You remember in his credo poesy, Sutarji wants to liberate words from the penjajahan pengertian dari peban idea, from the repression of meaning, from the colonization of idea. In other words, from meanings as concepts or cognitive graphs. I, I show you the the Sutaji's poem, just like a painting. This is called Tragedy, Vinga, and Siska. Singa. Tragedy of Vinga and Siska. The words are Kavin, 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 Vinga, 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 in this word. Chika, Sika, Kasi, Kasi, Kasi. And then it's Kaku. You can either read this anagramic, like anagram. As a brief love story of Vinka and Siska, 
beginning with Kasi love, ending with Kawin, like many love is, dust and Kaku, death. Or you can see it's a kind of picture, not a series of words that does not mean anything. And it's all right. Maclay's is empathic. A poem should not mean, but be. To be and not to mean is what a tree or a star or Latif's pago-pago canvas does. It, its muteness speaks millions. As they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. To put it differently, one image invites infinite reading. This is especially true today, and you may call it the passing of modernity. When there's no more, to borrow Adorno's word, a soul providing center of the cosmos, God is dead according to Nietzsche, and he was worried about it, because today what we have is a history that opens the space for total polysemy through perpetual conflicts, ceaseless shifts of hegemony and authority, history disrupts human desire to frame the world like a painting or like a definite well-designed structure the way a Greek temple was. And living in a period of war, destruction, and the, the loss of focal point Hyrule Anwar wrote a poem titled 1943. Do you have it? It's a very strange poem uh, with images which are very disturbing and chaotic. Racun berada di regu pertama, membucuk rabu terasa di dada. The poison is already in the first in the gulp and your lungs uh, going decay and tenggelam darah dalam nana, blood sunk in the pool, malam kelam membelam, jalan kaku lurus, putus, candu tumbang, tanganku menadah patah, luluh terbendam hilang lumpuh, Lahir tegak bergerak rupuh runtuh mengaum mengguruh menentang menyerang kuning merah hitam kering tanda serata rata rata dunia kau dan aku terpaku. Uh, the poem stutters as the Luce would say. Language thread trembles from head to toe. Hyrule projects fast images that come and go, leaving no trace of visual coherence. I think Latif suggests a similar topsy-turvy situation, albeit less chilling. Ah, uh, this one. Seribu mata kapak mengejar serpian kayu di udara. Masih ada yang belum selesai pada kilasan mata besi. Kilat akan bersabungan Ribut akan bergulungan kegelaran. Dan selumbar selalu setajam akan bertebaran menebal di seluruh benua. Anak-anak akan tersentak dari buku cerita melihat seribu mata kapak mengejar serpian kayu di udara. Uh, to me, this is one of Latif's most arresting points. The starter is less pronounced. In fact, there's an underlying melody in this poem, unlike Hyrule's previous lines. But the scene is almost equally surreal. If the meaning may elude us, that is precisely because it preserves the dark side of things. Love this poetry, his style, style of repetition, and his quiet elegance can be so, so soothing that one forgets that there's, there's his other side in which calm darkness is a sanctuary of freedom. Pauline read the 
poem, the erotic poem of Latif, Tujuh Lautan, the end is, the, end, the last stanza is, Tujuh Lautan, Satu Gelumbang, Dipusar Perutmu, Berpusing, Denyutan Purba, Memanggil Namaku, Kuturuni Bukit, Kutinggalkan Padang Luas, Aku Merangkak Kembali, Kelubuk Kelamu. Uh, a great work of poetry obviously taints something purba, ancient, even primitive, as a statement against the scheme of modernity. The scheme of modernity and other power that be in which objects are ordered to have meaning and significance and reduced to their readiness for use. And you can say it about politics, religion, and other things. Thank you. Let me say a few words, or more than a few words, uh, as a response to uh, what Maskun just presented. I'm very interested in how you begin uh, talking um, about the modern, or disavowing the modern. Let me give a little, uh, another approach to thinking about the modern before we delve into thinking about it in terms of the poetic or the literary and the artistic. Very often, there's an anxiety about the modern in this part of the world. There have been criticisms of the modern in Southeast Asia by saying that we have modernization, but we don't have the modern. Uh, I used to live in and work in Singapore, in between Malaysia and Indonesia. So let me talk a little bit about Singapore. But it's interesting that Singapore doesn't really connect Malaysia and Indonesia in some ways, right? It's an interesting kind of juxtaposition of these three places and to think about the modern in these places. There were some Singapore critics who would say things like Singapore's modernization without modernity. And modernization is something that we seem to take for granted. It means the tall buildings, the infrastructure, the capitalism, wealth. But modernity, seem, uh, modernity was then posed as the thinking and the questioning. I responded to this kind of discussion of modernization without modernity by actually saying that it's wrong to say Singapore doesn't have modernism, an ideology, because modernization without modernity is a form of ideology. So it is a form of modernism. What's interesting then when you, when you sort of disavow thinking about the modern because you don't want it to be tied in with so many things, what comes up then is also to think about the comparative. When you were ending and you were co uh, quoting, oh, I, I forgot exactly whom, but this idea of the total Polysemy. We are now in, a, uh, in a, a moment of history where we, we have so many questions coming from so many different directions. Thinking about comparisons has been very useful. And in fact, when you spoke last um, in Ilham in September, you were making a comparison between Latif. And I remember asking a question about your methodology of comparison. I was thinking about Ben Anderson, so let me just uh, uh, bring Ben Anderson in. Of course, he was a great scholar of, uh, of Indonesia. Um, you know, the last things that Ben Anderson did was that he was working on the final proofs of his memoir, A Life Beyond ba uh, Boundaries. Interestingly, the book was first presented in Japanese, and it was only later that everybody was persuading him to write this memoir in English. So the, the theme of translation is also uh, coming up. And of course, translation is so much to do with comparison. Uh, I'm, I'll quote uh, from, from Anderson. It is important to recognize that comparison is not a method or even an academic technique. Rather, it is a discursive strategy. There are a few important points to bear in mind when one makes comparison. First of all, one has to decide in any given work, whether one is mainly after similarities or differences. It is very difficult, for example, to say, let alone prove, that Japan and China 
or Korea are basically similar or basically different. Either is possible depending on one angle, one's angle of vision, one's framework, and the conclusions towards which one intends to move. A second point is that within limits of plausible argument, the most instructive comparisons, whether of difference or similarity, are those that surprise. A third reflection is that longitudinal comparisons of the same country over a long stretch of time are at least as important as cross-national comparisons. So comparisons across time or comparisons across geography. A fourth point is that it is good to think about one's own circumstances, class position, gender, level of, and type of education, mother, language, and so forth. At the end of the chapter, Anderson ends with this. Good comparisons often come from the experience of strangeness and absences. And I feel that that sentence really resonates with the ending of your own presentation about uh, the, the, the primitive in, in the poem. What I find quite interesting is that in making the comparison between Hyrule and, and Latif, you also then called forth so many other comparisons with uh, Archibald MacLeish, uh, Sutarji, Mallarmé, and Sitor, and even Basho. Earlier when you began and you talked about not thinking about the modern as a period, most everybody sort of fell into the 20th century, except Basho, you know, the, the, the haiku with the frog. And here we get very modernist kinds of questions that these other people were, were talking about. Archibald MacLeish answering the question, what is a poem? That kind of self-reflection. Um, or Sutarji, words should be free from the, the uh, rotten tradition. So you have these two sort of poets making very kind of universal and, and uh, uh, general kind of statements. Um, but then you have Sitor saying that there should be that specificity and no generality. So it's interesting that there are these contradictions and tensions. But of course, you've managed in your presentation to, to show how they sit with each other, that they have to do that. The, the, the silences and things, and yet they are of course, done in words. So it's very interesting that we still, in ways that other people have recognized, really talked about these kind of modernist uh, questions in, in your presentation. But the way that you end it then opens it up, I think, very radically. Again, this kind of total polysemy. And this is where, again, I'm very um, appreciative of the kinds of comparisons that you're making and the comparative. So to wrap up, my question, not so much, it's not so much a question, but it's, it's, it's a struggle, as it were. I struggle to think how today we think about comparisons uh, in a way that we didn't, the word postmodern we don't use anymore. It seems uh, not very useful. But the way that the modern still sort of hangs around us. So how do we make these kinds of comparisons? How do we think about uh, comparing the modern uh, or not using that word and making the kinds of comparisons that we do? And I feel that your presentation today uh, in some ways tries to answer some of those kinds of ways of thinking about comparison. Uh, comparison is made with the first step which is to stabilize two different things, which comparison like reading poetry. It depends on how you, how you, this is selection, uh, selection which one is to be compared. The second is to freeze the process of change. You know, the problem is this labels and theories, they are, not open to the fact that what the so-called reality is, is process. As there's a philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, which says that reality is actual occasions. It's always process. So when you compare uh, China and, and Japan, Malaysia and Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia, you freeze those entities and then you select from them which one is comparable, it is not. It's always misreading 
comparison is a reading which is always a misreading. Uh, that's why I don't really compare in the terms of making it a kind of finished project, but as kind of moments in the making. Uh, and that leads me to the idea of modernism and modernity. I think people, most people, if I understand it, are confused within two terms, with the two terms. Modernity is something which modernity is against. Uh, modernity starts with what the, the famous words of Max Weber, Ein Zobrung at the wall, the disenchantment of the wall, where magic is no longer accepted when the moon is the moon. It consists of some, something you can land on, something you can measure. There's no magic. It's not like the first man who, the first human being who sees the moon. A sense of wonderment, a sense of, there's an enchantment and a magic, and it's lost in modernity. And the second thing is that you start to look at the world as a resources. It's something you stand for you the way to be used, to be instrumentalized. Weber used the word Zweck rationalität with its instrumental reason, instrumental reason. Uh, this is modernity. And that's something which ends with with some tragedy the technologizing of the world, everything uh, which we are seeing today, climate change, everything. And then the dehumanization of, of the earth. Uh, and that's what uh, the philosophers and thinkers in the 20th century started to challenge and question. You remember for the Frankfurt School and the, the dialectics of enlightenment, which equates enlightenment with destruction and horror. A bit exaggerated because progress can be very good too. But it's the beginning of the rise of criticism of modernity. Then in the 1930s in Europe, you see the, the modernism was born. Surrealism, Duchamp, uh, Dadaism, what else? Something irrational, something which is against the instrumental reason. So there's, it's a, curiously, modernity, modernism in the arts is something which is against modernity. In Indonesia, the Takdir Ali Sabana is the father of modernity. He always wants to modernize Indonesia. To, he, he, he calls before the word Indonesia, before nationalism, only, we have only pre-Indonesia. We call it even Jaman Jahilia. Terrible, Jaman Jahilia, Indonesia. Uh, but his poems, his, his aesthetics, are very much against modernism. Indonesian modernism was born together with, with Haidel Anwar after the revolution. The impact of the revolution in the cultural life was still not un has to be studied, but it's Im immense. Because in the 40s, you have everything. Uh, outbursts of modern, modernity, modernist paintings and music and everything. Because the hierarchy, the social hierarchy, and every, every hierarchy was turned down. The world is was completely chaotic and, and, and vibrant at the same time. Takdir uh, Al-Shapa was not very happy with this. He condemns Hyrule Anwar's poem, poetry and literature, and his, his generation is, is a production, only producing rujak, you know? Something fresh, but without vitamins. Well, Takdir was an old generation. He didn't know that Rujak was here. Uh, good for your Hawaii. 
at least doesn't bring more cholesterol. But that stuck there, and he was, he was not happy with the, all this avant-garde thing. He is the father of modernity. And modernity is followed by political leadership. Sukarno is one, Communist Party is one, another Muslim modern parties are examples of, of voices of modernity, which is equal to using the instrumental reason to see the world. Maybe that's, that's the destiny of the world, to adopt, to succumb to this onslaught of instrumental reason. And it's the destiny of the arts that's always in the margin. And it's getting alarming when you think about artificial intelligence, what we are doing to deal with. Uh, as if artificial intelligence will solve everything, but I wonder whether it will create poetry, which it can be programmed to, uh, to paint like Van Gogh does. But the surprises, the unexpected, the, the shock of the new will not be there. And that's why modernism is important in that sense. My presentation is, of course, a celebration of modernism, not modernity. But I don't want to use the word because it's always tainted with uh, a certain epistem, a certain paradigm, time-related paradigm. Another word we haven't used, um, but of course is, is um, loitering uh, throughout, is nationalism. And I think it was quite interesting that the dynamics that, we, that, that you've set up through the contradictions, the dialectical movement, has always been thinking about, you know, cultures and and you know, even though the word is not used, modernism, it's it's there. But you you seem to be wrestling with that ghost, but less so with the ghost of the nation. And I think that that works for me um, to think about um, uh, Hyrule as a, a poet from Indonesia as a country rather than Indonesia as a nation. Uh, because of the, the openness that a country suggests, uh, you know, the way that we think about it rather than a nation which has uh, that, it's not freed from a certain kind of political uh, history. You know, to, to think about freeing words, you also want to fig, uh, free um, uh, cultural figures uh, from, some, from certain kinds of frameworks. Um, I'd like to open, uh, questions uh, to, the, to the audience now, uh, but I do want to get back to a question that you raised also about artificial intelligence, but maybe we can uh, come back to that a little bit later. So if we have questions from the audience. Uh, okay. Um, Maskun, I would like to ask something. Actually, picking up on what you were saying, Wang Choi, about the nation state, about nations. Um, it struck, strikes me that someone like Palatif moved across all these different wilaya, all these different places, at a time when the nation state wasn't so formed, so firm as it is perhaps now. Um, would you like to comment on that? Do you feel that there are more barriers now uh, in terms of the movement of people and more especially the movement of ideas and how we view uh, our, the world around us uh, from the 60s when he was moving and when, you know, you were obviously very busy at the same time. Are we moving towards a situation when the barriers are that much greater now or does the internet actually facilitate and make everything so much easier? Uh, okay, let me begin with uh, the idea of nation. I think it's famous Ben Anderson say that Nation is an imagined community. It doesn't mean it's a fixed uh, unit. But imagining is a process of myth-making, uh, a process of reading and interpreting and deciding. And then it's like from this imagination, the process of imagining, you have a nation. But there are different level, level kinds of nation. 
nationhood. And there are different levels in history. I think in this area, in this region, different history. Uh, when Latif came to Indonesia, maybe Malaysians, nationalism was in a very high flux. Uh, Singapore and uh, Federation and whatever. While Indonesia was solidifying with a guided democracy and everything. Uh, nationalism, Sukarno, Konfrontasi, things like that. Uh, it doesn't touch either Latif or me. We're just friends and we like poetry, so we forget about the basis of nation. Uh, today, Indonesian nationalism, if I may say, is a bit lucky in the sense that it was built, it was built upon universal values. It's not ethnic nationalism, nothing. It's not religion-based nationalism. Why not because our leaders, our founding fathers and mothers were benign? They were, they are wonderful. But because it's an archipelago, it's a world of moving, people moving around and intermingling. And the Indonesian, Bahasa Melayu, was used different ways in different areas, same Bahasa Melayu. So there's an a element of universality in the nationalism, different from you have in Yugoslavia, Serbian nationalism, or Africa, black nationalism. It's not based on ethnicity. The worrying thing is, since the last 40 years, identity politics has taken over the discourse. Now you have this identity politics of based on ethnicity, on religion. In the beginning, identity politics was something useful. Women, rights, the blacks. But later on, it became ossified, reified, and become a cult and a danger. And what you have seen in the United States, the racism, Donald Trump, that clown, and a very dangerous clown, and what what you see in, in, in Europe, the right wing is gaining ground. Uh, we may be we may need a, a kind of a different kind of nationalism at the same time universalism, but I don't know how. Sukarno said that our nationalism should grow in the in the garden of internationalism. I think he. It's not his original thought, but it's beautiful. I think it was from Gandhi. I'm also interested in how poets were very important to cultural nationalism in Southeast Asia. So a person like, like uh, Latif uh, is very much important. Uh, you know, it's interesting that today you don't have poets who are part of uh, the imagined, the, the larger project of imagining a, a nation or a country. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, two generations ago, you would have had that. Um, and it seems like, is that possibility lost? Uh, how does one deal with uh, the problems of um, the anxieties of, of, of identity politics today? Whereas somehow a poet, uh, uh, you know, poets could speak. And, and now they seem to have much smaller audiences. Well, uh, poets bringing forth nationalist ideas was in Indonesia in the 1920s. Uh, Muhammad Yamin, he was propagating nationalism. But basically, poets should not do that. It's going to kill the poetry. You better write the pamphlets on Join the Gorilla. But I think of it more as a retroactive. So the poet does what she does or he does, and then much later gets um, uh, appropriated by a larger kind of national narrative. Uh, so, yeah. so, you know, not, not as the, you know, the poet is the avant-garde of a very different kind of uh, agenda, but 
in in the rear guard action, they get uh, appropriated for uh, that kind of project. My experience in Indonesia, nationalism, nationalism, or the the national awareness. If a poetry can contribute something, is make the language alive, because the language is the only uh, what currency, and in this nation building, if there's a building at all, uh, but it, it 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 creates more fluidity in the process. Uh, but we should not burden our expect poems, poetry, to those kind of things. No, I, I will reject it. And it's dangerous too. Poets are not that holy. It can be, can be very dangerous when they have scale to say and then when you start narrowing down your world, it's going, I think it's going to stifle your, your, the flow of your poetry. I believe that. We have to wrap up our session. Is there a, a question? Yes. Persoalan saya, Pak. Adakah hasil karya penulis Malaysia, termasuk Latif, mendapat perhatian daripada kalayak penulis Indonesia? Uh, penyair sering lebih banyak terpisah dari masyarakatnya. Dan saya kira tidak perlu mengeluh atau mencerca. Karena di mana-mana, kecuali di momen tertentu seperti di Rusia. Di Rusia setelah Stalin wafat, penyair seperti Yevusenko, Vosnesensky menjadi digemari banyak orang. Karena tidak ada empat bersuara bebas kecuali dalam puisi. Kemudian ketika Eropa Timur negeri sosialis lebih punya kebebasan bersuara, jumlah peminat puisi juga berkurang. Saya pernah bertanya pada seorang bekas menteri kebudayaan Polandia, do people still go to poetry reading? No. Why? Sudah ada television. And television was free. Just like in Indonesia. When the television and the press was under the control of Suharto, my magazine was, was flourishing in a way because we tried to challenge, test the water. But when the television became free, nobody read it anymore, which is sometimes very good. Uh, I mean, it's, there's a risk when society adopts points. It's a risk that it will be the other way around. The poets will, will lose their independence. It become a part of the collective being which, is, which can falsify their voices. I think poets should be, should be like hermits. And when you say, then what's your social role? Well, you have social roles. You are a hermit, you write poetry in your room, but when there's a fire, you have to jump. When there's a depression, you have to take the story. But then you write poetry, lyrical poetry about love, about broken-hearted, but don't, but you never condemn as being egotistical. There should be a sanctuary in society why silence is appreciated. And today, religion is very noisy. Religion is very noisy. The Sufis died down. That's why poetry, when it becomes imbued with religions, only people like Rumi can survive. Others will be finished, become preachers. And we don't need preachers, so many of them. We need points. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. 
And to learn more about our programs, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia-Kasim, and Ashley Lim. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening.